The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to this Friday edition of Halftime Report from the New York Stock Exchange. Front and center this hour, a Goldilocks jobs report. Is that what we got today? And if so, what does it mean to your money in the weeks ahead? Is it time to bet more heavily now on a soft landing? We'll ask the investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Rob Seachin, Josh Brown, and with me here on set, Jenny Harrington and Jim Labenthal. Let's take a look at the Friday trade after that jobs report. We're green across the board. we got a pretty good session going, too. 350 for the Dow. We're above 32,000. S&P is above 4,000. That's one and a quarter percent. And yields holding at 323. That's the 10-year. The question is, Jim Labenthal, uh, is it a Goldilocks jobs report for investors? It keeps the Fed on its path, uh, but not more hawkish. 50, maybe more likely in September than 75. And thus, as I said at the top, those soft landing hopes alive. This has got to be pleasing to you and your point of view. It, it is. Um, I'm going to take the bait. I think it is a Goldilocks report. Okay. But I will at the same time reminisce that it was a week ago we were here. We were listening to Jay Powell's reports. We were dissecting it. And what he said is, I need to see the totality of data before making a decision about September. For me, it's very important with my thesis that we, for a soft landing thesis, that we do 50 in September, 25 in November, 25 in December. This report helps that thesis, but for me, the most important thing is the CPI report coming out uh, September 13th. We do know the Fed uh, concentrates on the PCE, but the September CPI is the first, excuse me, the August CPI is the first uh, of the inflation reports that we will get. And I think that's the one that will move the needle even more than this report. Just to be more specific, I'm happy we got jobs uh, growth. I'm happy. I think we're supposed to be happy about that. Intellectually, though, what you really want to see is the labor force participation rate picking up. Check. You want to see average hourly earnings still growing but below expectations. Check. That's why I think it's a Goldilocks report. You agree? No, I don't agree. So I think when we say Goldilocks report, what that implies is like, la, 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 you know, everything's fine. We're back off to the bull market. Just invest no, no, no. everything. I, I don't necessarily. I mean, okay. I, I can understand why you would say that, because in the traditional sense of talking about something like that in the stock market, yes. But as it relates to inflation, the Fed and a more hawkish possibility after the number, I think that's specifically what we're talking about. I think that more moderate version of here's what Goldilocks is, then yeah, okay. if that's how you want to define her, I 100% do. For, agree. For, the, for this particular time, I do. Okay, so then I'm with you. But, but what I go back to is whenever I personally hear Goldilocks, I think of like, oh, the good old days. And that's why I say, no, I don't really agree because I don't think we're getting back to the good old days. But I think it was a great report. What I think is we're seeing some signs of positivity, right? We saw that. We saw, so we've got initial jobless claims. We've got manufacturing PMI coming in better than expected. Consumer confidence up from where it was. We've got Atlanta Fed forecasting 2.6% GDP, which is great. And there's other stuff too, right? Um, Lizanne Saunders put something out this morning saying we've got 76 consecutive days of gasoline prices coming down. The UN put another piece out saying we've got five months now of food prices coming down. So I think 
the world is moderating. And it makes mm -hmm. me think of when I first started coming on CNBC, Jim, I think I asked you this. I, I it was, you know, I was new, I was scared, and I said something that I thought was really dumb. And the advice that What's Jim, Wapner really like? Was that part of the conversation? No, no, I think I just totally <laughs> botched a statistic. Um, and, and what Jim said back then was something like, look, the advice I was given when I first started come on was, it's never as good as you think it is, and it's never as bad as you think it is. And I think that's where okay. we are in this market. This market is not going to be as good as we think it is, it's not really as bad as we think it is. And that's why I keep coming back to, I think we're range bound. I mean, maybe There's that's, a lot to digest. Maybe that's good enough. I mean, that, Ed Yardeni, uh, Rob Seachin yesterday said the lows and the highs of the year are in. Uh, so we're going to be in a trading range. And, and maybe that's what, what Jenny thinks uh, ultimately as well. You tell us today you're slightly less cautious than you've been. Why so? So we think we've seen the lows for the year, but that does not mean the volatility is over. And the reason we're less cautious, uh, less cautious than we were is because of numbers just like this. And I think this is a very surgical number. You know, there's more data that needs to come out. But your read on this number is important because the labor force participation rate is a huge factor for the Fed. And it becomes less tight. That's exactly what the Fed wants. On the opposite side of this, though, you get a positive market reaction and financial conditions look a little easier. And that's exactly what the Fed doesn't want. So I think what you're going to see in the month of September is the Fed's rhetoric is going to continue to be very, very hawkish. And I think you're going to see a lot of volatility around that. However, the green shoots that we see is maybe they're all talk and that the hikes are going to be exactly what Jim said, which is 50 basis points in September, 25 in November and 25 basis points in December. And so I think it's really highly dependent on that. The other thing that I would add to this is let's not forget that September's historically over the last 40 years, the toughest month of the year. It's the only right. month that is that is negative right and you have this process that we're going right and through right now where finally thank god finally earnings estimates are starting to get cut and usually you see a bottoming in markets as you go through that process so i wouldn't you know i wouldn't load up the boat yet but i'd certainly be paying attention with an eye towards as we get towards the midterms and as we get more of this data and hopefully it corroborates that that tough talk leads to less action that you can start to be a little more optimistic and you've probably seen the lows for the year but i also agree with ed that you've probably seen the highs for the year yeah the the hope i guess um it sounds to me josh is is the the fed is all talk and the market does the action right that that's what what seems to be happening in some ways now is that the market does some of the fed's work for it you see what yields are doing, for example, on the 10-year, and that a soft landing becomes more plausible, assuming, assuming that inflation continues to go in the right direction and the economy doesn't fall off a cliff entirely. The actual, uh, the actual Federal Reserve is the two-year Treasury, and that's at three and a half. The 10-year peaked for the year on June 14th, which is the day the stock market bottomed or the day before the stock market bottomed. That's not a coincidence, guys. So now you've got uh, the 10 year ripping higher. It's probably heading toward where the two year already is. And I would just tell you the last time the 10 year 
or, or when the 10-year was at its high, which was uh, three spot, four, eight percent yield, almost three and a half percent, which is where that two years are already. Um, the last time the 10-year was at that yield, um, that's when really markets were at their worst. So then the question becomes, all right, the next time the 10-year gets back up there or even violates that level to the upside, is the stock market going to tolerate it better than it did last time? And it's possible. Um, but I think that's the number one thing to watch. The second thing you want to watch is the dollar. It is probably the most perfect correlation this year. Uh, strong dollar is weak stocks. And when the dollar really rips, that's when stocks are at their worst. Um, so tell me a story. Tell me a global macro story wherein the U.S. dollar falls or completely reverses uh, its rally. Because in order to tell that story, you're going to have to tell me how the euro which is 60% of the US dollar index, all of a sudden runs from one to 110 or one to 120. What makes that happen? Certainly nothing, nothing happening in the European economy. <laughs> okay, so, so guys, so guys, I wanna believe too, um, but I'm telling you right now, watch the two year, watch the 10 year, watch the dollar, tell me a story where those unravel or reverse, and then I'll tell you the lows for the year are in. Um, so in addition to all of the earnings and the economic data, et cetera, like those are price indicators that have been extremely reliable this year. And I just wanted to give everyone that sense of what I think is important. The last thing I want to say on this, we happen to have on today's show three people, and then I'll, I'll throw myself in, four people who in real life, not on television, have to answer to clients for the things that we say and do. It's very different uh, to have to actually do that the way Jenny and Rob and myself and Jim have to do than to just make calls on TV. So, you know, there, there's, there's, this other, there's this other type of prognosticator who raves about how great their television calls are, their Twitter calls are. In my newsletter, I told people in January, blah, blah, blah. It's very different than to actually in real life have to answer to other people. So the next time someone says, I told you to get out of the market, oh, who do you manage money for? Oh, myself. I got a small hedge fund, it's all my money. Congratulations <laughs> on that. Very, very different than to be Rob or be me or be Jenny or Jim. So I think when you hear people talk about their outlook who actually then have to answer for it in real life, there should be a little bit more weight to that. And I just wanted to give uh, my kudos to my, my co-panelists today as people who okay. are actually really trying to do this in the real world. I got you. I think I know the root of where this is coming from, <laughs> but I'll just leave it. I'll leave it at that for the moment. Um, I interviewed Professor Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton School uh, yesterday in overtime. You know what? His view matches up with some of the more sunny outlooks uh, for the remainder of this year, in large part because of what he thinks the Fed is going to do and, frankly, what it isn't. Here's Jeremy Siegel. I think they should do another 100 basis points by the end of the year. You know, I mean, the market expects a bit more, but that does fulfill a good tightening. I don't think they need to go higher uh, than that. And, you know, scaring the market, saying we're going to stay high through 2023 when they have no idea what's going to be happening in 2023, I think it is, is, it was really not a, a, a good image to project. 
All right, so that's Professor Jeremy Siegel. Uh, so, Farmer Jim, I mean, he largely is in your camp. And I, I said to him, okay, so if that is the result, if you're right and it's 100 basis points more and, and that's it, what does that mean for stocks? And he said something to the effect of overwhelmingly good. Now, yes, the flip side of that is what UBS is talking about today, even as they maintain their own view of 100 basis points for the, the remainder of the year. Further volatility caused by earnings revisions, downgrades, and higher than expected default rates over the course of, of next year. That's a very plausible view for both outcomes. What does that mean then for stocks? What I think is, and I'm going to try to riff off of what Josh said because I think he said it very elegantly and very balanced. There are many potential scenarios going forward, okay? And anyone who says, slamming the table that this is the scenario no, that we, is going to happen. Deal, hang on. But, hang but, no, no. But, but we need to deal in, in probabilities. That's what all of um, you do perfectly the fine. way that perfectly you fine. Yeah. invest and the way that you design Correct. your own market Let's outlooks. Do the higher probability right now is that I could see, okay, Fed goes 100 more, 50, 25, and 25. High probability of that. There's also a high probability that earnings revisions are going to happen. And they're going to come down. It's only to the degree that they do. I think that is a high probability on both. Okay. So I think one can agree with that. Well, no. Where? No. So but just where? Just tell I, me where. Just, okay. All right. Just, just tell me where. Just don't start yeah, yelling me at me, where. okay? When I disagree with you, you tend to I'm, yell and I don't like just it. Just tell me where. I'm not yelling okay. at anybody. It matters your perspective, okay? What I do is I talk to company managements. I listen to earnings calls. Okay. I go out and do my own gumshoe detective work. And what I'm telling you just simply is that aggregate demand all right, has not fallen off the cliff that everybody who says earnings are ready to just calamitously fall. I didn't say calamitously fall. I said there are going to be downward right, let me phrase revisions. It, let me phrase it's it almost a formality at this point. You suggest that earnings are not going to be revised that, lower at all. Well, they might be revised lower. No, we're talking about probabilities. I don't think there's any need for derision as we disagree, Scott, okay? I don't think it is a fait accompli that the earnings are coming down. And again, based on my perspective, um, I note, by the way, and just give me a little rope on this, okay? I note that three months ago, we were having this discussion and there was a concept of the analysts are out of their minds. They're delusional. It's a word that's been used I a used lot of the last. I used and that so, word so, many times in describing yeah. why they hadn't taken down their estimates uh, to, to that point. And maybe you're right. Hang on one second, Jenny. Maybe you are right. I'm, I'm dancing with you on this. You may well be right. I see the probabilities as not quite as high as you do. I'm, and this is coming from the perspective of listening to company managers. It doesn't matter whether it's Cisco Systems, Wynn Resorts, I mean, Hewlett Packard Enterprises. You know, this is my perspective. Other people have different perspectives. I don't see the, the rapid drop in earnings that I think the bear case is predicated on. Can I bridge this? Go ahead. Okay. So I, I think the rapid drop in earnings is really the key. And as usual, we're talking about magnitude. Scott, when we were arguing about this same thing maybe a month and a half, two months ago, we were talking about $230, $200 earnings for the S&P for this year. And what you and Josh were pushing back on me on was exactly what Josh is bringing up now, that we need to look at Forex, we need to look at the price of the dollar, we need to look at interest rates. But, as, and, you, and you guys were saying, if foreign exchange, if, if the dollar stays strong, that technology companies are going to get slaughtered, it's going to plummet S&P earnings, it's going to be terrible. And when I was saying, okay, but 16 times earnings, 18 times 230, you kept saying, but the earnings are what's in question. And as it turned out, 
this past quarter, earnings held up kind of surprisingly well. And they held up surprisingly well because as it turns out, a lot of the major contributors to the S&P 500 earnings are not the big tech companies. They're the companies that are doing really well, like Chevron and Exxon and United Health. So I think, I think earnings will come down. Right now we're at $250 about on 2023 earnings. Right, that's way you know too what? high. I agree, but yes. let's say they're 240. Let's say they come in at 240. You know what the multiple is right now on $240 earnings? It's 16 and a half times. That gives you a reasonable amount of a wiggle room. And you know what? All those stats that I cited before, PMI, um, consumer confidence, gasoline prices coming down, this is going to buoy companies up to some degree. The, the market, the economy is not as bad as it feels and it's not as bad as it looks. Understood, so let's but, say, but, 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 but Josh, but I'm going to go to Josh. Okay. If the dollar remains strong, as you said, and even with the Fed hiking rates and a lot of it, by the way, still getting through the system, getting through the pipes, hasn't even fully gotten there, plus QT, financial conditions are going to tighten. The environment is going to be a bit different, right? Europe could be in a recession who knows when. Um, I find it implausible that earnings are going to hold up to the degree that Jim Labenthal argues that they will. This is not a matter of whether they crater. He's making an argument that he doesn't even think they're going to go down. Go talk to uh, somebody that follows the semiconductors um, if you're looking for an area where numbers well, are then, already coming down and what the what wait wait and what the impact on those stocks is because the semis um, look like out of all of the important sub indexes within technology the semis look like they're going to be the first to retest those uh, those June lows and actually they bottomed after the market this is uh, this let, let's look, take a look at SMH give me um, give me a one year or a three year chart real quick. So Josh, we think that hold on, hold on. We so so we think that we think that the semis, uh, a current forecasts, it's a forecast PE ratio on a weighted average for this index of 16. Some of the more popular larger market cap semiconductors forward uh, forward PE north of 25. Given where we are in the semi cycle and the global economic cycle. Is that realistic? So I don't think so. And the stock market doesn't think so. The evidence is right in front of your face. Um, are the semis, so Jenny, are the semis going to be alone in being in a situation where earnings are too high and investors Josh, are going to face disappointment? Or are the semis going to be thing. early? Okay, but here's the thing. NVIDIA takes up a large percent of market cap in the S&P 500. Meanwhile, it is not a large contributor to S&P 500 earnings. And actually, if you look at the top 20 contributors to S&P 500 earnings, I can't think of very many semi-companies that are in there, right? They are further down. What does contribute significantly to S&P 500 earnings, as I mentioned before, are Chevron, Exxon, United Health, really big companies that are not as at risk. And so also, like, if we're going to be, I, I feel like when you're talking about this, You've got NVIDIA in your mind, where there's significant, well, I don't even know how significant their earnings downside is, even with the China thing. That was, that's like, what, 7% of revenues on one specific chip? But if you back up and you take, like, crummy little Intel, right? I'll, I'll give you all. It's crummy. We're I've been talking totally about, wrong. But, but we're talking about Intel semis. But we're talk Jenny, we're, we're not talking about the individual fundamentals of any one company. We're talking about semis as a shorthand for economic activity 
uh, I capital don't think goods, that's right, the right thing to do. That's what we're saying. Fine, then let's talk yeah, about energy. Let's talk about the, yeah, Yeah, sure. go ahead, Rob. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's no question that estimates are coming down. No question in my mind. In fact, it's been a really strange feature in equities that despite mounting evidence of economic softening, weakness, lower PMIs, falling consumer confidence, a housing slowdown, we have not seen this reflected in earnings projections for 22 and 23. They're finally being revised lower. And I think that's, that, that is a very important part of, uh, of this. But if you look at what's happening to margins right now, you can't tell me with all these inflationary pressures that, that we are going to continue to be able to pass cost increases on to consumers. So I, I have to think that margins are going to come in. The other thing is valuations still have to be at risk. It's 17 times earnings even after this sell-off. Um, you know, it doesn't matter that in, in inflation is peaking. I think, you know, growth trades at 23 times, value trades at 14 times. Growth is a huge part of the market, a 65% premium still. So I would be very careful until some of this, uh, these adjustments happen in chasing anything to Josh's point. To the point of Jenny and to the point of Jim, for long-term investors, these resets are important. I do think they will happen. It's just a question of when, and I don't think we're we're there yet, given that the right. Fed no. is doubling QT in September. Right. It makes right. no like sense. You, Jim, you can be more positive than most. Certainly, you can be bullish without being all in, Jim, and suggesting that earnings are going to take no hit whatsoever, <laughs> which is your argument, and it doesn't seem plausible to me, to be frank. Thanks for bringing up the all in Jim. Like that never, I never said I want to be known as all in Jim. And by the way, you know, I sold Nvidia a couple of weeks. I've got a little cash. I don't mean hands. all in in terms yeah. of all in on the Look, market. I mean all in on this view that everything is, everything is awesome uh, and that earnings are not going to so come let me give down you the, let at me give you, all. Let me give you the logic chain, and I'm purposely doing this in a pithy fashion, all right? The U.S. economy leads the global economy. Take it or leave it, all right? The U.S. economy is based on consumption, 70-odd percent. Consumption requires jobs. I simply put, I don't think we're giving enough importance to how many hundreds of thousands, you know, approaching two million jobs have been created this year so far. I just don't think, and this plays into earnings, plays into sentiment, plays into market returns. I simply don't think enough importance is being placed on that. Last point to you, Jenny, and then we're taking a break. Oh, boy, that's a lot of pressure. Um, well, I mean, you've been raising your hand. You've been pointing that you want I the ball. I know, I know. Now you got the ball thrown to you. I know, and now I've got it. Either run with it or uh, run out of bounds. Well, let, let's go back to the all-in then and the idea of being all-in and being fully invested. And let's just take a step back from that. One of the things that's been beating around my head a ton is the cliche of that we've all heard, time in the market is more important than timing the market. So if we want to go with the all-in and the thought of being long and staying positive, right, that's who wins in the long term. So even if Jim's not right, which I don't think you're right, Jim, that earnings revisions won't come down. I just don't think it's going to be a huge magnitude. I think we're going to still be, we're going to be able to surmount it. But even if you're not right on that, 
you're, you've got the right call on the long run. And this goes to a point that Josh was making earlier, where we work with real clients and we know them and we're responsible for their financial well-being. And we know that if we let them freak out and time in and time out, that is of great detriment to them. So us as professional investors, we are highly incentivized to take a long-term positive stance because we have 100 years of market history that show us that blips and pullbacks and, you know, boy, it turned out to be 75 basis points or 100 basis points, not 50. That's, that's like meaningless in the long term of investing. So I would go with err on the side of positivity, all in whether you consider it positive on the market or all in on the market, like either that's gonna serve you well. And I just wanna get back on one thing that Rob said, which is, Rob, you said maybe 18 times or 17 times is too much, but this is where we need to start to put our thinking caps on as actual investors and not say, oh, well, the market's traded at 17 times or 21 times or 16 times. I think we now need to say, all right, if the 10 year is gonna be in the 330, 350 range, what are you willing to pay for a multiple? And I'm willing to pay, I'm willing to pay like 15 to 17 times. That sounds right to me. That seems rational and reasonable. I am not willing to pay 21 times. So if I can take 240 of earnings, hold on. Okay, let's say that. Rob, you can take 230, you can take $230, you can take $240, and we're right about there. Right, we're right about there, and that's why I get I guess say, hey, I think we're kind of range bound. Right, I don't right. think things are so that's great. A, that's I don't think word. they're so terrible. That's the last word. We need to take a break, guys. Straight ahead, gearing up for Apple's big iPhone event next week. What the street is saying and how our committee is playing that stock from here, uh, one fifty-eight and a half. Basically, what we'll call it. Halftime's back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. Apple's big iPhone event kicking off next week. Morgan Stanley and Bank of America both shockingly, shockingly reiterating their buy ratings. A little facetious, sarcastic. What do you expect? Um, Jim, forget the event, right? What I, I'm, I'm, in, the con- in the context of we don't need to discuss the new model of an iPhone, yeah. what I need to discuss with you is the importance right now 
of Apple from keeping this market from going down further or enabling it to go up more from here. I think that's what matters more than anything else rather than the size and the features on whatever the next phone is going to be at this particular moment. Yeah, you, you, you sold me on forget the event. Totally agree. Not forget uh, the event, but you know what I mean. I know what you mean. It's six and a half percent of the spiders. Um, it's 11%, give or take, of the triple Qs. A lot of people, when they come into the market, use those passive ETFs. And by the way, those are far from the only ETFs that have high exposure to Apple. So yes, by definition, it's a tautology that it is important to the direction of the market. Is it the most important no. stock right now, as, as some have suggested? No, and I will tell you why. Simply, first off, empirical evidence. You go back about a year and a half ago. I know it's a long time ago, but the first, first second quarter of 2021, it labored while the market went higher. So we know just factually on evidence that it can underperform in the market too well. Um, the other thing is, is there is a very plausible scenario in which Apple does just fine. You know, maybe it goes up four or five percent from here to year end. But other portions of the market do better just based on better earnings projections. That's a plausible scenario. I'll leave it at that. Okay, Josh Brown, the, I mean, you have been making the argument most recently that Apple's importance is more important just given where the market is right now. Yeah, I actually, I agree with Jim. Like, it, just because this is an important stock doesn't mean it has to lead the market in terms of returns. Um, and, and we've seen several environments where, you know, we've been poking Apple with a stick. Come on, do something. What's wrong with you? While there's been money to be made elsewhere. So I think that's really the salient point. However, a little bit of a twist. Apple can't crash. Like, it, like it's a $2.5 trillion market cap. It's in every ETF, it's in every index. So while it doesn't have to be a leader, it has to hold up, right? It could lag, it could be flat, it could be down a little bit, but Apple can't drop a bombshell about orders in China or you know this iPhone model being the first one in a long time to be slow. It is a $1,400 iPhone after all. So that can't happen this year, but the stock is up 675% over 10 years. The S&P in that time is up 240%. It would be okay if Apple lagged and the rest of the market now took the lead or some other group of, you know, 10 or, or 50 gigantic stocks started to gain an importance while Apple faded. That would be perfectly fine. The likelihood of that seems minimal. Jenny. The likelihood of it fading seems minimal. I no, no, no. The likelihood of like 30 huge stocks doing great and all of a sudden Apple's going to start doing badly so well, look that, at, that one at, would offset the other one would one would offset the other here's my prediction my prediction is that we're going to look back in 10 years from now and apple will relative to another 30 stocks will have done a whole lot of nothing but i also think when we're arguing about s&p earnings you look at apple that makes up about seven percent of s&p earnings and you look at their earnings estimates for the next few years and it's like up eight percent earnings growth, 6% earnings growth, 6% the year after that. So I think it just kind of sits there as a dead weight of stability, which, weight. Cuts, which cuts both ways, which cuts both ways, right? It might keep earnings stable, might keep the market stable, but I also think that we're in a more tepid environment for dead, the next decade. Rob, quickly too, dead weight Apple. Well, it's been a dead weight since mid-August. You know, I'm like everybody else. Every time I upgrade the quality in the portfolio, we add to Apple for obvious reasons. We did the same thing in mid-August, along with Eli Lilly, H&R Block, Vertex, all of which I talked about on the show. And since then, then every one of them has outperformed Apple. And, uh, you know, Apple's up in line with the market. So 
I think when you have a stock that trades at 27 times next year's earnings and it's trading at a 15% premium to its long-term average, 50% premium to its peers, you know, I'm hoping I'm wrong on this because me and a lot of other people hide in Apple because of the earnings quality of the name. But, you know, since the latest highs on the bear market bounce, it's been a market performer. So you clearly have to think outside of Apple if you want to generate some alpha. All right. Yep. Coming up, nice gains for Broadcom on the back of its earnings. Halftime committee member Stephanie Link owns it, which is why she's calling in next. Find out what she's doing with that stock when we come back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hello, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's our CNBC News update right now. The Department of Veterans Affairs is getting ready to offer abortion counseling and in some cases, abortions to pregnant veterans and their dependents. Abortions will be offered when the mother's life is in danger or the pregnancy is the result of rape or incest. Right now, the VA does not provide abortion care and Republicans are pushing back. They point to a 1992 law that prohibits the VA from providing abortions. But a 96 law demands that the VA provide needed medical care. All right, Tropical Storm Danielle has strengthened into a hurricane. It's the first to do so during an unusually quiet storm season. Forecasters predict the hurricane will not make landfall, but will meander in the Atlantic over the next few days. And a drug-sniffing dog uncovered a huge haul of cocaine stuffed into a wheelchair. This was in Milan at the airport. Nearly 30 pounds hidden in the upholstery of the chair. When police made the discovery, the guy in the wheelchair just got up and walked away, didn't apparently need the help, immediately arrested. Street value of the drugs here, Scott, $1.4 million. Can't escape the long arm of the law, nor the dog. Nope, creative, but no dice. All right, Contessa, thank you. Sure. That's Contessa Brewer. Broadcom's the best stock in the SMH today, the semiconductor company beating earnings estimates and issuing a strong guidance. Committee member Stephanie Link, as we said, owns it, joins us now on the phone, uh, bucking the trend of what was a, you know, a, a fairly concerning space. Uh, it has been. What, what do you think about this, Steph? Yeah, so it's good, good to see you, Scott. So I think you want to stay selective within semiconductors. The reason I own and I like Broadcom is because it has diversified end markets and exceptionally strong execution. This is one of the best management teams in the industry, and they proved it. The quarter was solid. Semiconductor total revenue grew 32% year over year. That's about 78% of the company of the company's revenues. Software grew 5% year over year. Gross margins were nearly 76%. And most importantly, the book to bill at 1.3 times shows you that there's a lot of visibility and backlog also grew. So they're doing the right things. That's rear view looking, though. The guidance going forward was also very encouraging, though. Semiconductors, they're expecting to grow 20% for the foreseeable future. That's pretty impressive in this tough environment. And software is going to grow mid-single digits. And their order visibility is very strong. Lead times are at 52 weeks. So I feel pretty good about this particular story. But you know I've not been a huge fan of semis as a, as a whole. Uh, I think you're going to see some double and triple ordering in the industry. These guys have the better end markets like enterprise cloud and broadband. So I think 
they are uh, they're better positioned uh, going forward. And by the way, I think in the fourth quarter, they're going to raise their dividend by 20%. They got $12 billion in free cash flow. So that's a nice catalyst coming, I think. I think Jenny wanted to ask you a question. Yeah. No, I was just going to pile on stuff and say I think it's interesting because we, I've kind of been keeping with this theme, and I think you have too this year, which is you can't just buy tech, you can't just buy semis, you can't just buy software. So it's interesting to see um, Broadcom, Cisco, Palo Alto, where it's that like really critical IT and corporate and infrastructure spending versus anything that's more consumer related. You just really need to parcel it's, it's through it. That's exactly right. Enterprise is where you want to be. And we've heard Mm -hmm. this week, we heard from Hewlett Packard Enterprises, we heard from IBM. Enterprise is still where you want to be. And that's what Broadcom uh, offers you, in addition to other things as well. 13.7 times earnings with a 3.2 yield. Pretty pretty attractive. For now, for sure. Um, But we'll see if it all holds up. Steph, thanks for calling in. That's Stephanie Link uh, joining us. Coming up. Cyber stocks, you as well. Uh, Cyber's pacing for the worst week since early May. A new street note out on some of the biggest players today, which means we have a debate and we have trades. And we'll do it next in our call of the day when we come back. Just want to call your attention uh, to the market here, uh, certainly from an intraday basis. You can see. Uh, that big rollover uh, that we're showing you the S&P 500, of course, here. But the Nasdaq, as we just noticed a few seconds ago, uh, had gone negative. There it is. Uh, it's a fractional move negative. There's a headline uh, being passed around that the uh, out of Europe that the transport of gas to the Nord Stream pipeline over in Europe has been completely halted until faults are rectified there. Uh, there is a note that during a routine maintenance work, uh, an oil leak was detected. Uh, and that may be uh, what is causing stocks here to take a, a leg lower as, uh, p- you know, perhaps some of the uh, algorithms react to uh, headlines, especially sensitive ones like that one. Uh, Josh Brown, something we uh, obviously need to keep an eye on uh, could be reversed. But nonetheless, uh, there are several people who are, who are passing this headline around uh, whom I trust uh, who are suggesting it's the reason for this weakness that we're seeing. Jim correctly asserted earlier in the show that the U.S. economy leads the world, and he's right. And a recession in Europe doesn't necessarily guarantee a recession here. And, of course, that's true as well. I do, however, believe that the news flow regarding pipeline stuff, uh, which, by the way, this pipeline was only running at 20 percent of normal before today. So it's not like things were going well. If you start seeing $10 natural gas in the state of California, and you start seeing like literal economic warfare over attaining natural gas supplies, liquid LNG from the U.S. between Asia and Europe, and you get this continued saber rattling vis-a-vis pipeline maintenance coming from Eastern Europe, it's just not going to be the right backdrop, in my view, uh, for anybody to be able to say soft landing. So this type of stuff makes it harder, not easier, and keeps inflation higher, not moderating. Yeah. Uh, Markets are especially sensitive to any headline coming out of Europe, as you know, particularly uh, relating to energy and natural gas and the transport of it. We'll keep our eye on that and bring you any updates as we get them and certainly what uh, the stock market continues to do as a result. Let's talk about this call of the day, though. It's Atlantic Equities initiating cybersecurity. Fortinet, Overweight, Palo Alto, and CrowdStrike both initiated neutral. Uh, I said it's our call of the day. So, Rob Seachin, so Fortinet gets overweight. The target there is 76. You own that, yeah? 
We do. We do. I, I mean, they reaffirmed their guidance. They're a 20 percent grower over the next five years. They have a huge free cash flow uh, margins, 30, 36 percent. I'm going to tell you, this is a relative value play. Uh, I love my friend George at CrowdStrike. He is a friend of mine. But that stock's just not cheap enough for, for the type of position that we own. Uh, so Fortinet is uh, what, what we decided, to, how we decided to play this. We think it's obviously a really important space. And I think that, you know, relatively cheap is what I would say, because none of these stocks are inexpensive, as you know. Okay. You're no longer invited to George's Labor Day barbecue. Sorry. After you, after you said that, your buddy, the CEO. CrowdStrike, though, Josh, which Rob Seachin says is too expensive for him, that's yours. Well, it's not a cheap stock, and I do think that's actually why the stock hasn't performed after reporting essentially a flawless quarter. Um, even the analysts that have it at a, at a neutral, uh, I think one of them said something like, there's really nothing to critique here. Um, right now, over uh, uh, expensive stocks relative to cheap stocks is not the place to be. Rob is right. However, uh, over the intermediate to long term, that's not what actually wins out. And the best evidence of that, let me show you a cheap uh, uh, security stock, Checkpoint, CHKP. The stock has been cheap for 10 years and has also underperformed pretty much everything in the space. So there's got to be a secondary determinant other than just the multiple. And I do think that CrowdStrike's business model and growing dominance over the entirety of the, the Fortune 500, et cetera, large governments, police forces, uh, uh, security agencies, like that's going to be more meaningful, I think, than a discounted PE. So I'm going to stay with uh, CrowdStrike. And George now will like me better than Rob, which I think is important <laughs> as well. That's true. You're going to the barbecue. Seats, you're out. Uh, Palo Alto is Jenny's pick, and you, why do you like that one the best of this space? So this is, Josh is exactly right. It's not just about the multiple. You need the story to work in concert with the multiple, and with the valuation. And I shouldn't even say multiple, because in this case, you're not looking at the multiple. You're looking at free cash flow yield, revenue growth, billings, all of that. So you have three companies, really great companies, right? Super essential. We all know that tons of spending in cybersecurity is still going on. But you've got Palo Alto that's down 2% on the year, basically flat. CrowdStrike down 15% on the year and Fortinet down 30. Why? Because they went in with the same great story, but they had very different revenue growth and valuations. In the case, in this case, we look at it and we say, okay, we like Palo best because they're pumping out two billion of free cash flow. They've got a four and a half percent free cash flow yield. That plus the story gives us the most security and comfort in owning this company. All right, so we'll take a quick break. Mike Santoli's up next with his midday word. We still have to get to a new buy as well from Jenny, and we'll do that certainly before we get out of here today. There's your market picture right now. Again, NASDAQ is still negative. Dow, S&P are still holding on to gains nowhere near where we started the show some 47 and a half minutes ago, and maybe it is the headline or two related to the Nord Stream pipeline over in Europe. We'll keep our eyes on all of it, and we'll see you in two minutes. All right, we're back uh, here on the Halftime Report. We do have uh, stocks really holding with uh, that uh, negative real view. I mean, the NASDAQ is still negative, and the Dow and the S&P look like they could go uh, negative at, at any moment. Uh, senior markets commentator Mike Santoli is here for his midday word. Maybe, you know, Algo-driven headlines about Nord Stream. I mean, the market's overly sensitive, as you know. Sure. To the jobs report, though, if nothing else, it, it 
doesn't force us to regame out the Fed in, in, in a few weeks like we might otherwise have had to do had it been super hot. Yeah, I think it probably took the pressure off just a little bit. I mean, the downward revisions uh, from the prior couple of months could have softened the 300,000 net new jobs. At the same time, you know, the wage growth moderates. It really was pretty much made to order in a lot of respects. Uh, I don't think, though, that it also for- enables you to reprice the Fed in a more friendly way either, right? So we are where we were. Um, you know, it's, it's probably better. I think it's certainly better to have a U.S. economy in good shape uh, that's resilient and that's able to withstand whatever the Fed is planning and likely to do. So I think it's net-net a positive. I think the market kind of gets that, but it doesn't get you away from the fact that it's September. You know, uh, everyone who's, who's willing to bet against this market is saying, well, it's all to come. You know, we have housing downturn. It's going to drag other things lower. Uh, and valuations are, I, I keep saying, they're defensible, but they're not compelling as buys. This, if it, look, it, and also, if nothing else, what, what these headlines underscore is the sensitivity of the market. Yeah. The issues that remain front and center over in Europe related to the war and otherwise. And predictions that the European economy is rolling over really hard and there's going to be a recession there the dollar and everything playing into the conversation yeah like nothing changes the fact that central banks are tightening into a slowdown right that's been the overarching thing it's been the shadow all year uh i don't think it's gotten worse in the u.s but clearly i mean how many times in the last two three decades have we said but Europe, you know, there, there, there always seems to be as if it's going to be a net drag on global growth. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to be the, the driving factor. But, yes, there's, there's sensitivity. I think it, maybe it argues against the need to go to the, to the June lows in the S&P. I've been talking about that. If you look across the board at things that are better versus worse now and then, things are mostly a little bit better, at least better than we feared they would be. True. Good point. Uh, We'll see you in a bit. That's Mike Santoli. He'll be back for his last word, of course, in overtime. We will do final trades here next. Three hours from now, a Super Friday edition of Overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern. Rob Seachin's BFF, Tom Lee, will be with me. He's going to tell us now what, after the jobs report, what it means for the Fed, why he is still bullish on stocks for the remainder of this year and not wavering one bit. So he'll make his case for all of you a little bit later on today. Dan Greenhouse will be with us as well, Victoria Green uh, and some others, too. So we look very much forward to having all of you join us then. Your final trade, Jenny, is a new buy, which I said Mativ, M-A-T-V, like Victor is the ticker. Right. So I'm giving you one for the price of two, final trade and a new buy. All right. I think this is a great company to own for this environment. And if you don't know it, it's because it's new. It's the combination of Nina Paper and Schweitzer Madui. They make all these weird things like the deer netting that I use to cover my blueberry bushes, the little strip on the inside of bandages, and they've got about GDP plus growth. That translates to mid to high single digit earnings growth. Okay. Trades at eight times earnings. It's just a terrific company. I think I'd rather own this than an Apple. It's not under the microscope, okay. has the same earnings growth, and a third the multiple. Good stuff. Rob Seachin, your final trade. KLAC, we like to buy after sell off. There's a story of capital efficiency, cash generation, and quality. And it's down less than the, the indices uh, since the semi started selling off. All right, good stuff. Uh, Josh Brown. No position yet, but watching this breakout in first solar out of a triple top. Mm. Okay. All right. And Farmer Jim. Goldman Sachs, 50-day moving average is approaching the 200-day moving average. I'll see you all in OT. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.